0: Yeah, I am the worst of an song, I went on south, can't never die. Turn to the bridges, and slam through the griffes. And down in the back of Dragula. Dragula fell over the riches and slam on the riches and down on the back of my regular. Let's all slam in the back of our Dragulas today and talk about first two chapters of The Dawn of Everything by David Grabgrove. So... This book promises, in its opening chapter, to basically blow your balls out of your mind. That's the basic pitch. It's like, all right. And the, uh, the language of the first chapter is very much like, strap in, pickle dicks. We're going to fucking blow your mind. Sort of like uh, one of those epic Twitter threads where they're like, Bo Brummel is the reason that men uh, only wear sweatpants. And the first chapter uh, starts this process of sort of demystifying uh, and disillusioning us of our fantasies of how human civilization emerges by demolishing the twin uh, origin stories of human civilization uh, that we uh, all, really, uh, in the conventional Western political spectrum, uh, it, uh, adopt to one degree or another, which is the Hobbesian notion of a state of nature defined by violence and conflict between people nasty, brutish and short and the Rousseauian notion of a uh, period of uh, uh, divine innocence that is then tainted by uh, accumulated uh, technologies of civilization that alienate us and, and that imprison us and uh I mean, the first chapter is pretty short. It's actually, honestly, I have to say, it's really an introduction. It's not a chapter. Don't know why they called it chapter one. They should have called it the introduction. Uh, So the first real chapter that, like, actually starts making an argument is chapter two, Wicked Liberty. Uh, And... In this chapter uh grabgro starts by making a affirmative argument that I have honestly not seen before I'll give them credit like this is interesting that the enlightenment sort of uh self consciousness the critique of the social order that you see emerge in the early seventeenth century was not the product was not the product of uh Western thinkers looking inward just you know for uh uh for reasons that were in- endemic to Europe. His argument is that it was the result of uh Europe fully interacting with other cultures for the first time in the form of the the uh indigenous societies that they were uh, engaging with in the New World and that it was their critique. It was the um it was the indigenous critique of European culture that led uh, the Enlightenment thinkers to start navel gazing about like what is liberty, where does inequality come from, and all these questions that would not have occurred to them otherwise. And I have to say, the evidence is not terribly, you know, compelling uh, as presented. Like it's it's probably an overstated case, but when a project like this, I will credit it because you are doing the work of trying to dismantle. Uh, a narrative that doesn't have any better foundations. That's the important thing is that you can't really argue um, that the thing that they're demolishing has more substantial uh, uh, foundations. So if this, you know, alternative notion allows you a, a in a lever, uh, a, a leverage point to undermine what you think is of a specious or politically harmful narrative, uh, I think go for it. I mean, at the end of the day, I think what they're trying to do is, with this book, is not necessarily argue that uh, for a actual, like, affirmative case for human civilization, but really to just say the one that we carry around with us uh, is a story and it's not a compelling, it's not a uh, helpful story. It's a story that hinders us. That it's a story that uh, retards our ability to think politically uh, in a uh, and effectively because we it reaffirms our um, our sort of frozen and stuck nature. Uh, and while I don't think that that's really enough, like you know, I do think that one of the big uh, problems with the entire anarchist project is. An overemphasis on, you know, uh, individual attitudes and ideas in in motivating people, but I'd say it's better to have that alternative than to be stuck trying to square uh, an emancipo- emancipatory political project with the dead end. I do agree, dead end notions of Rousseauian or Hobbesian humanity. But like the first thing that he's that they say that really kind of raises my eyebrow is there's an argument that um that early modern European states started adopting uh things like uh trained bureaucratic cores and uh uh and, and uh unifying language uh because of the suggestion of guys like Leibniz to follow the example of the Chinese imperial state. Uh, I would say, okay, no, that's not the case. I'm sorry. Uh, that happened because Europe was going through a process of, uh, a, a, a secular process of uh, power concentration, and that, that that power concentration had those uh, reforms and those developments sort of built into the program of, of dynastic uh, accumulation of power, which was being pushed by material uh, uh, causes, not because somebody read it, hey, look what the Chinese are doing, let's do it here. So that for me is one of the things I think is going to be an underlying uh, divergence from their like emphasis, I would say, over mine because... I'm just telling stories, too. You know, I don't have any evidence either, really, any more than anybody else does. Uh, I just have, um, I just know what, for me, resonates more, and it is recurring to the uh, the material conditions. So, and, and also in doing so, uh, <laughs> Graeber makes the claim that there is no Native concept of equality in European society uh, before the encounter with uh, Native Americans. And I'm sorry, that is uh, pretty ridiculous. I mean, you can make a weaker case that it was not a uh, concern expressed by uh, the, like, literate classes because why would they? But it was certainly a thing that existed like uh, throughout European society, like at, at the level of the social. But according to Graeber, uh, the Europeans start navel-gazing about social order when they encounter uh, uh, Native Americans who live in social orders that are radically uh, uh, egalitarian uh in the sense that there is no central authority nobody is really under anybody's sway except of course for those uh bands that have uh war captive slaves which you know that's uh that's a real thing that he kind of glosses over uh but for the most part you had these uh uh tribal social orders that did practice horticulture so did do the thing that later Europeans would insist leads directly to regimes of control and and uh and coercion uh but but did not have those because uh they did not have the conception of of property as uh as not just something that could be held but something that could uh give one person power over somebody else um, and they saw the Europeans coming to the United States uh, and Canada, and said, "You are slaves. All of you are slaves to somebody else. None of you actually have the freedom that we do." And uh, according to uh, Grab uh, uh, it was an interaction. With a uh, Native American uh, diplomat who whose conversations with a colonial French administrator led to the publication of a very popular book uh, that was read by all of the leading philosophs and that ended up uh, sparking a chain reaction of uh, searching treatises and essays to try to make sense of okay. Wait a minute! What's going on here? These guys—they're owning us. What? These these savages! What's going on? And uh, they point out that for a lot of Europeans, specifically for the Jesuits, uh, the liberty. That the uh, natives prized was actually uh, poisonous, was bad. Uh, freedom is not good for people. Uh, and that is, I think, because they came from a society where social orders were so ingrained. And and a uh, regimes of uh, uh uh exploitation and social alienation were so deeply ingrained that uh that the idea of a transcendent supernatural authority uh who who could be obeyed and by obeying would keep you on the right side of the authority on earth and also reward you in the hereafter, uh is a necessary way to to cope. That, that, that you need that in your mind to compensate for the lack of freedom that you have. And it turns that lack of freedom into a virtue. But of course, if you live in a social order where there is not that radical alienation between people, where you are forced to treat people not as uh, fellow recognizable humans, like on an equal basis, but as uh, uh, through the social requirements of the, the class and structures that they and you find yourself in, uh, uh, freedom can only be a danger. It can only be a, a sin because. Those structures are the only thing keeping you from expressing the pain of that loneliness. So uh, here we have a, uh, a definition of e- equality as it was understood uh, by the Native Americans and how it contrasts with European notions that I thought was pretty interesting. Equality here is a direct extension of freedom. Indeed, it v- is its expression. It also has almost nothing in common with the more familiar Eurasian notion of equality before the law, which is ultimately equality before the sovereign. That is, once again, equality in common subjugation uh and also they go they later on they they point out that uh european notions of freedom are tied to uh are really tied functionally to roman ideas of freedom where freedom was freedom uh, to overlord and own other people be they your slaves or your family and that that was Freedom as conceived by uh, the imperial Roman state, and which uh, that structure maintained itself through uh, the successor regimes uh, that populated Europe afterwards. So he says, "Just I caught this here, but isn't anarchism the basically the end state of Marxist analysis?" Yeah, but end states are meaningless. Who gives a shit about end states? No one none of us are going to see an end state of anything. I would argue nobody will ever see an end state of anything. The struggle for it is life. And so the question of how do you struggle for it is the only meaningful question. And I would say that anarchism fails the question of of practical uh uh action because it sacrifices practical action on a utopian horizon that is irrelevant to the lives of us, our children, our children's children. But I guess that's part of what GrabGrow are trying to do here is are argue, no, we are not actually prisoners of history. We can change and, uh, and uh, challenge our structures at our will. And I am very skeptical of that claim, which is one of the reasons I wanted to read this book. So, this book that takes Europe by storm is this purported uh, interview between this uh, Huron statesman, Candy Aron, Kandiaranc. Candy Kandiaranc? I'm going to go with candy-a-ronk. Uh And this frog, uh, Le Hontan. Uh, and many people have claimed historically that this is just a guy talking to himself and that the Native American here is just a prop. Uh, but Grabgro makes a pretty compelling argument that these guys did have close contact when uh, Le Hontan was a uh, French colonial administrator in Canada. So, and that there were notes of their interviews. And the guy who he talked, who ha, puts words in his mouth, is was a real guy who might very well could have come to uh, France as part of a diplomatic mission. And so within this book, you see uh, Rock just demolishing all of these notions uh, that undergird European social order. Uh, this is one that I thought was... Uh, particularly compelling. Uh, You have observed that we lack judges. What is the reason for that? Well, we never bring lawsuits against one another. And why do we never bring lawsuits? Well, because we made a decision neither to accept or make use of money. And why do we refuse to allow money into our communities? The reason is this. We are determined not to have laws. Because since the world was a world, our ancestors have been able to live contentedly without them. Now, He gets here to the very crucial uh, reality that it is a private property regime that necessitates the coercive state apparatus that we live within. Um, And that if you do not have a state, if you do not have private property, you actually can live statelessly. But again, my mind always comes to material conditions here. And the material conditions of uh, the tribal bands of North America... Uh, are such that uh, the prospect of being dominated uh, and uh, completely destroyed by an outside force uh, are relatively low in that context, Uh, thanks to the incredible abundance of resources, which is not uh, the European uh, experience at all. Uh, Europe has been since the fall of the Roman Empire, a a grasp over a relatively sparse territory by a lot of people. And more specifically, a lot of people who, thanks to the existence of the Roman Empire, had access to uh, technology of coercion and control and and empowerment that that made uh, the threat of external domination much more uh, keen than they might have been in the uh, north woods of the United States. So again, here we have a materialist difference between the actual uh, environments of the one and the other. Not necessarily one group making a choice to live freely and another uh, making a choice to live as slaves, but but, uh, responding to uh, material conditions differently. Uh, and at one point, though, uh, the one that really struck out to me is uh, this line, which does really uh, anticipate the Marxist critique of uh, soci- of, of civilized uh, society. Over and over, I have set forth the qualities that we, Wendat, believe ought to define humanity, wisdom, reason, equity, etc., and demonstrated that the existence of separate material interests knocks all of these on the head. A man motivated by interest cannot be a man of reason. And that, to me, is uh yeah, that's that's a bingo right there. that that and, and I must say though, uh that was also the uh analysis of Gerard Winstanley, the uh leader of the uh Diggers at the end of the English Civil War, who wrote a book oh my God, people actually want me to read the Anarchist FA.Q. Shut the fuck up. You really? God. No, you like hockey fans. Uh uh-uh. uh. No, have you ever really watched the game? Have you ever really read the FAQ? have you read the fucking FAQ. Obviously. Give me a break. So uh, this book sparks this, uh, this spirit of internal criticism in Europe. Uh, and you have first this guy, uh, this guy, A- R.J. Turgot, who uh, takes the indigenous critique, turns it on his head and says, yes, uh, w- the Indians don't have uh, laws and, and regimes of control but they also do not have uh, advancement. They do not have progress. They do not have a social teleology. And that becomes one of the fundamental elements of the like Western gaze as it accelerates its imperial domination of the rest of the world. Like uh, Again and again, uh, Western uh, cultures will encounter these these societies that are in a relatively uh, homeostatic relationship with their environment aren't uh, physically uh, less healthy, uh, whose lives are about as long, uh, who do not suffer from all of the the manifold and horrifying alienations of uh, of civilization, uh, but they do not accrue. And that is, it's that lack of accrual uh, that, renders them fit for domination and, and uh, in fact, necessitates their domination. Because, uh, uh, because Western civilization, technological civilization, is a project, is a self-conscious project. And by that virtue, one of the virtues of imagining yourself as part of a uh, social, civilizational project is that the suffering within it the suffering caused by it, of course, because it's not happening to you, uh, or if, it is, if you are suffering, you are also gaining, uh, can be understood as a necessary sacrifice for this greater project that you're part of. The actual pain gets abstracted away, which is much harder to do when you are living life uh, in a... Uh, Harmony is obviously kind of a a, uh, a cliche and definitely uh, kind of uh, uh, condescending, but certainly a more stable relationship to your environment. But a stable relationship to, to the environment is just that, it's stable. It does not... Change with time, and it is change with time that defines civilization. Uh, but where this chapter, I think, really hits gear and where it's really interesting is when he starts talking about Rousseau. So Rousseau took to took to the challenge uh, posed by the uh, the indigenous critique and set about trying to figure out. How we went from there to here. How we got from this idol to this brutal world of of, of exploitation. Man born free everywhere is in chains. So they start off talking about uh, Crusoe's notion of the state of innocence, which even Rousseau admitted was not a claim of a real historical fact, but was a thought experiment, which puts, I think, this whole book in that tradition. And I think that's self-conscious on Grabgro's part. Uh, But there is one part where they're describing his notion of uh, the the isolated and free individual in nature, uh, where I feel like, I don't know if they're being obtuse or they're not, I'm missing something, but they say, that Rousseau argues rather confusingly that the first humans were essentially good, but nonetheless systematically avoided one another for fear of violence. I don't think that's really confusing. I don't think there's any reason to assume that the inherent good intention of an individual in a state of nature where others are strangers in, in, uh, means that you will necessarily have an awareness of the good intentions of others. Like it is that, It's that chasm that defines the other in the first place, is that we cannot know them the way we know ourselves. So, in Rousseau's notion, uh, the individual free person, in order to protect themselves, flee towards what they think is safety, but was actually slavery, agriculture, uh, civilizational uh, hierarchies and all that. And uh, Grabgrove to a good point of pointing out that like what Rousseau really did here in his uh, analysis is that he synthesized the uh, indigenous critique for a literate, intelligent European audience in a way that allowed them to recognize the essential truth of the critique, which any real rational person and these guys all pride themselves on how realistic and rational and undogmatic they were, has to recognize as true, but at the same time cannot be accepted because they're in Europe. They're European guys. They're uh, guys and gals, I guess, some of those ladies in the salons. Uh, they benefit mostly if they're reading this shit. They benefit from uh, the society of orders and from colonial exploitation. They don't really want to live in the woods. <laughs> so what Rousseau does is he is the father of, the mod- of, the, of modern Western liberal subjectivity, where you are able to enact and enshrine your own personal virtue by recognizing and acknowledging the evils of the society you live under, while denying that there's any alternative. Because, this is the crucial part, for, um, for Rousseau, the notion of liberty that he cherishes is of individual autonomy. But of course, that is not the liberty that any indigenous society uh, has ever uh, enjoyed. It is interconnectivity, mutual aid, to use an mar- anarchist buzzword, uh, and uh, just, just interdependency that allows for freedom. It's the fact that you have people that you can rely on that allow you to be free. Because, yes, if you have no one else you can rely on, you will invariably uh, have to fight. And that will rob you of freedom because it will put you uh, away from you know uh, choices made by what whim or fancy and on choices demanded by the necessity of survival, which is, of course, not freedom. But because of that, Rousseau cannot imagine, really conceive of uh, indigenous societies as they are, which means that this loss of freedom is a tragic inevitability. Because we cannot be interdependent that way. We, we cannot uh, uh, surrender our, uh, our independence to one another. Because, I would argue, Rousseau grew up in fucking Europe around Europeans. <laughs> People whose entire lives had been uh, defined by these hypocritical structures of power that rendered them hypocrites. And so a young and and, and, and a tender Rousseau who fled from his family because he didn't want to be under their thumb and is always fleeing towards total independence from others was doing so because the, 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 the civilizational notions of the people he surrounded himself with were repellent to him, which, as well, they should have been. But that blinded him the, to the very, even possibility of people living uh, in mutual interdependence that actually uh, allowed for them to express human freedom. Which is, again, where material reality butts up against idealism. Like Rousseau's notion of, of of what a person is, how, how a person behaves, what human nature is, is determined by his observation of humans in nature, that nature being uh, early modern or at that point enlightenment Europe, which is a different subjectivity than those than that of uh, a uh, a uh, horizontally organized uh, bans in uh, North America, and so Rousseau's Rousseau gets blamed by conservatives for uh, bringing about the French Revolution and and uh, not communism and all that. And as is usually the case, they they're mad at an idea when it's not the idea's fault. Uh, but it is very true that Rousseau's the implications of Rousseau are that the only way to get back to that state of uh, freedom, uh, that that state of liberty of the individual, uh, is some purifying regime that literally changes people. And that that's, I think, why the reign of uh, Robespierre is, I think, rightly uh, considered the culmination of the Rousseauian project. Not going to do anything about emergent capitalism. Not going to do anything about a society stratified by class, where uh, your uh, freedom of freedom is totally constrained by your access to artificially restrained uh, resources, where you you cannot get what you cannot have what you don't have to buy. Uh, that's all. That's that can't go anywhere. And I mean, you could argue it couldn't have at that point. You know, It was a bourgeois revolution at a time when the, the uh, 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 capital accumulation had not become sufficient to allow for uh, a real effective uh, transfer to anything like a working class because there wasn't really a self-conscious working class of any kind to take power in any case. But you had this bourgeois revolution that was trying to reintroduce liberty, equality, and fraternity in a structure of emergent capitalism. And the only way to do that is to impose virtue by force. And Rousseau, Rousseau's ideas, liberal... Left, romantic, angelic leftism is a continuation of Christian notions of morality where you replace original sin with um, the material, or economic original sin, the secular original sin of uh, agriculture and civilization, uh, but maintaining the notion of an inherently fallen uh man who cannot return to that state of grace. And and the uh, the the line that Grabgro have here that I think really nails it is: uh, we argue that in folding together the indigenous critique and the doctrine of progress originally developed to counter it, Rousseau did in fact write the founding document of the left as an intellectual project. Because, like uh, to go, Rousseau takes for granted the notion of civilization as a teleological project, which requires it to advance over time, which requires it to uh, use technology to increase productivity, to increase uh, civilizational markers, to to increase the human footprint on the land, to literally. <clears throat> reshape the earth in human image in a way that indigenous society yes they farmed yes they built uh buildings and stuff, but not with the singular uh uh like structuring drive of western civilization uh and he ends talking about how the, uh, the myth of the uh, noble savage was actually a, a right-wing uh, denigration of the Rousseauian tradition. Uh, and that then there became the uh, idea of a stupid savage, which once again comes from the fact that if your society is not building monuments to itself on the land and And instrumentalizing humans to do it, then you are not actually uh, a thinking social organism because you're not moving forward. Uh, but the intriguing notion that they uh, propose uh, coming off of the uh, uh, observations of uh, French anthropologist Pierre Claster. Uh, and I think that's going to be talked about more in future chapters, which I'm looking forward to. Uh, is that the reason that there might have been these uh egal- these like well established egalitarian structures that were not in the process of like moving through the stages towards uh a hierarchical civil hierarchical civilization is because the people of uh that were encountering the uh French and American uh colonists at that point very well might have come out of, previously, experience with those very social orders. Uh, They say here, we find it difficult to picture, we find it difficult to picture what a truly free society might be like, right? Which is why we find ourselves just butting against our, butting our heads together and stammering and being like, what the fuck? When we try to actually articulate um, uh, alternatives to the life that we all live, because we've never experienced it, we we have no real understanding of it. Which is why talking about end states of, of socialism is so, so absurd. That would the end state of socialism, such that it even could be imagined to exist rather than to be a horizon, uh, would be shaped by the specific contours of the struggle to attain it. it. Cannot be conceived of without that experience. But that means that we're stuck, unable to move forward. Many, a lot of times for lack of a a vision. Uh, But they say, so we find it difficult to picture what a truly free society would look like. Perhaps they, the indigenous North Americans, have no similar trouble picturing what arbitrary arbitrary power and dominion would be like. So the idea here is that they might have been able to maintain their non-hierarchical social order for because of generational experience in the past of it. And there's going to be talk about uh, a uh, theorized Mississippi uh, Valley civilization that had all of the bells and whistles of an an agricultural empire that collapsed uh, and that saw people flee from it and define their culture in opposition to it. Uh, And I'm very interested to get to that stuff. So, that's the first two chapters. I think for next week, let's see how long the third chapter is here. I think I want to give it, yeah, I want to give it its time. So I think we'll just do one chapter for next week. Chapter three, Unfreezing the Ice Age. I'll pop off here in a minute. I know it's a short one, but uh, any questions before I go? Do I enjoy it? Uh, it's, it's very fun read. I mean, they have a very, I mean, I mean, I read debt, you know, uh, Graber Graeber and Wengrow. they have very accessible conversational style. It's fun to read. I'm, 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 and it's even fun when they like just decide to like lay one out there, be like, Hey, how do you, you know that that's not why they did it. And I appreciate the, uh, sort of lampshading, the speculative nature of the project. So, so right now as i i i think the closest thing I'd say to a thesis is is that uh alternative social forms to hierarchical uh industrial technological civilization coexisted with uh industrial or technological civilization and that uh encounters between the two. Sort of uh, sparked the building of narratives of historical uh, progress that justified one way or the other uh, the current uh, system. Because, as I said, Rousseau is still, at the end of the day, as much as he wails and gnashes his teeth about all the the chains that we're held in, is excusing and justifying where we are as this tragic but necessary, inevitable. I would say rather than necessary. Uh, uh, Seeding of liberty as individual atomized people uh, flee from uh, the fear of one another into chains. Uh, And that that and Hobbes kind of become the poles of uh, imaginative uh, history uh, in the West. An alibi, as it were, for the crimes of civilization. Uh, And we'll see. We'll see how they pull it off. There's a guy who keeps DMing me to insist that this book annihilates the notion of stages. So, uh, uh, stages of, uh, of, uh, economic and social development. And, you know, I'm open. We'll see. But, yeah, I'm enjoying it. Uh, just, yeah, last question here, uh, Uh, the legacy of Roman law code's impact on our political imagination. I I referenced it briefly, but yeah, I really do think that we live in the shadow of, I mean, in a way, Philip K. Dick really was right that the Roman Empire never fell, in that it is the uh, political imaginary of the Roman imperial state that we have inherited. It never has been really challenged and overthrown from within. Like Notions of like freedom and liberty are tied not to interdependence the way they would be in, in other social orders, but to explicit ownership and domination. And th- those models, as I said, uh, became the basis for the successor states of feudal Europe and then inscribed themselves uh, in capitalism. Capitalism merely took that domination and abstracted it. Was able to use the use technology more than anything. Use technology to abstract away the personal violence of uh, regimes of ownership that go back to Romans, and then uh, uh, put them into the air. Made them made them the air we breathe. So yeah, think about think about those Romans. I, that's why I always kind of wish that. Uh, that David, so- as much as I love Deadwood, I kind of wish that uh, David Milch has gotten to do his Roman uh, idea that he originally pitched to HBO because what he wanted to do is he wanted to do a show about the birth of social order out of relative chaos, and so he wanted to do a basically a cop show about ancient Rome, like not like not even like late Republic, like early Republican Rome when they didn't actually have codified laws but they did have something like police forces so you had these guys who were basically making up law as they, as they did it, went about their job uh, and they were making Rome at the time so they said no and then because Rome was so expensive they ended up not doing the third season or the fourth season of uh, Deadwood so I know people like Rome but I only watched the first season stopped caring when Caesar died And I really hold a grudge against it because it prevented us on both ends from the ideal uh, David Milch experience. Okay, so, yes, next week, chapter three. Bye-bye.